union town all down the line this is a union town a union town all down the line this is a union town this is president ron herrera inviting you to tune into welcome to union town a new podcast that delves into the everyday issues and iconic leaders in the labor movement. We get to know the backstories of workers and the journey of leaders from their first job to their greatest victory. The show covers every aspect of the Los Angeles labor movement from the desert to the sea. I'm so honored today to have with us the highest ranking union leader in America. He served as president of the United Mine Workers for 13 years, but had an extraordinary career fighting for coal miners for decades as a staff attorney prior to rising to the president of their international union. Brothers and sisters, please welcome to our podcast today, AFL-CIO President Richard Trumpka. We're uh, elated to have him here, honored, and it's uh, very, very important. You know, sometimes when when you have an institution like the AFL or or any union and they reside on the East Coast, uh, union members out in the West Coast or other parts of the country feel separated. But we have a president that is inclusive and wants to talk to union members everywhere. And we, we started a new podcast, President Trumpka. The mission of this podcast is just an outreach to union members. One of the things that we'll talk about later on is a union vote, a block vote of union members, the old way of doing things, right, where union members determine legislation and legislators. But on this call, we have a co-host, uh, Brother Hugo Romero, and I'm going to uh, pass it over to him and uh, let him say a few words. Brother Hugo? Hey, President Trumpko. Thank you for joining us today. We... As Ron mentioned, we're excited to have you and just have this conversation to uh, for folks to get to know you a bit more. And one of the things that, you know, just reading your bio, you know, obviously growing up for me, I grew up in Mexico for a good portion of my life. And and then I came to Orange County. I visited Pennsylvania I, and it's uh, it's different. Can you talk to us about growing up? And as we understand it, you were born near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Could you share with us about your childhood and family and growing up there? Yeah, I, I grew up uh, really about 75 south, miles south of Pittsburgh and about four or five miles north of the West Virginia border, uh, right in the middle of Appalachia. That was coal country. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a third-generation coal miner, and, and I grew up in a little mining town. And it was a co- mining town was a company town owned by the company. Uh, they owned everything but two things in the town. They didn't own the Catholic Church, and they didn't own the local union hall. Uh, we owned both of those. Uh, and so the, it was different. Uh, they had their own police force at one time. Uh, they paid us with a, a money that they printed. And you could only spend it at their company store. Uh, and it was uh, interesting. But here was the good thing. Well, we grew up poor because the whole time I was growing up, we worked, the mines worked five days a month. Uh, and they would work you Monday one week, Tuesday the next, Wednesday the next, and so on. So you could never get an unemployment check and it made it more difficult for you to get a second job because you were always having a different day off. Despite all of that, we were close. Uh, We grew up close. Uh, My neighbors, my friends, people in that uh, town uh, were licensed by your parents 
to discipline you if they saw you getting out of line. And as a result, while we were ordinary, uh, we never got too far out of line because the entire community was there to make sure that you stayed in line and we stayed close. So we stayed uh, friends uh, and my best friends today are people that I grew up with uh, when I was uh, back in Emicolon. Interestingly, interestingly enough, I didn't have the experience of working in a mine like you did, and I know that you were a rank-and-file miner, but my ancestry comes from the copper mines of Arizona. And as a youngster, my parents made sure that we understood the way they came up. Poor, like you said, copper miners, you know, a company town, a company store, company, you know, hospitals. You know, thinking back, right, and when I know there's stories back in the day that when miners would go shop at the company store, a lot of them uneducated, and they're, we talk about wage theft today, well, there was theft within that store. Their paychecks were, were given back to the store, right? So profits were, were, you know, made by the store back to the mine. And then uh, the math that they use with Latino workers at that time was, you know, one and one makes four. Or, you know, if, if, if uh, something cost a certain amount, they would double the cost. And there was really not much they can do. My, my parents, luckily, um, uh, my grandparents lived in a, a town just two miles away, let's say, and they were able to, to purchase homes. But in the, in the mining town itself, Morency, Arizona, it's exactly what you said. So we, we definitely have that in common. And that's why I, I admire you so much because everybody thinks, I gave a speech yesterday at a rally, and one of the things that I said was that everybody looks at us, judges us for who we are now, but they never saw us in a mine. They never saw us, you know, eating in a lunchroom or, you know, walking in with a hard hat on, with a, a light, you know, going into a mine or, or eating lunch in a break room, punching and punching a clock and, and um, you know, getting directions from, you know, supervisors that harass you or managers. And that's, that's something that I very, very respect that you came in the hard way. And you made it to the top. Well, just going off of what you both have in common as a rank-and-file worker, President Trumpka, what did the day of a mine worker look like? That's a very different industry that a lot of uh, folks out west in this generation has not really seen. What what does a day of a mine worker look like? If you're talking about today, you know, uh, miners are, are obviously worried for their industry because the industry is getting shut down and after providing the country with the fuel that it needed to industrialize and modernize, uh, now coal is no longer uh, in fashion uh, and they want to do away with it. And in the process, they want to do away with the miners that uh, spent their life and gave their health uh, to that. You know, uh, a miners works a hard day. You work underground, it's a hard day. Uh, you get up, uh, you get your clothes on, you get your light on, you get you know, a lot of equipment on. You're probably carrying uh, 12, 15 pounds of a battery, a self-rescuer, any tools you might have. So you got a lot of weight around you. You go down uh, in the mine when you get off the cage or the elevator. 
there's no light. It's completely black. It's only the lights you have uh, on your hat and the lights that you have on your uh, machinery. And then you get into a, a car that we call a man trip, uh, and it will take you back into to the working section. And that may be a, a half hour trip uh, until you get back into the section. You get out of the man trip, you hang up your jacket and your dinner bucket because the water that you're going to drink and the food that you're going to eat are in that bucket and no place else. And you go to work and the machinery's loud, very, very loud. And there's no place for the sound to be absorbed. And so if you, you don't wear uh, hearing protection and, you know, back when I went in the mine or my dad or my grandfather, because I'm a third generation miner, both my grandfathers, my dad, Two of his brothers, six of my uh, uncles, and 10 of my cousins all worked in the coal mine. Uh, you know, back then, about 70, 75% of the miners experienced significant hearing loss from the sounds bouncing off the mine, off the coal. And so you, you put up with it. Now you have hearing protection. You have some protection from the dust to keep uh, from inhaling dust, which causes black lung disease. And black lung disease prohibits you from exchanging oxygen in your lungs into your blood into your bloodstream so you always feel like you're out of breath like you're gasping and if you want to know what it's like to have black lung put a piece of tape over your mouth tape one nostril shut and then run up and down a, a flight of steps about five or six times and the way you breathe and how you strain to get a breath is how someone with black lung breathes every breath. It's a horrible disease. Every member of my family in the two generations older than me died from black lung disease. All my, my grandfathers, my uncles, my dad, uh, and, and many of my cousins uh, died from black lung disease. Horrible disease, horrible way to die, and it could have been prevented. That's the thing that really irritates me the most. And, and Ron, I might say this. You know, my first job in the mine was I was chairman of the health and safety committee. That was my first elected union job, chairman of the safety committee. And I took that job seriously because I thought it was my job to make sure that if you went in that hole, you came out of that hole at night and you got to go home to your family, all of you, not a piece of you, not, not someone who was infested with a disease that you got little by little every day but I wanted you to go home whole so you could enjoy your family. And I'll tell you one story that really made me realize what it had cost my father. My father was a, a tremendous athlete. He was a great ball pitcher. My sister had three boys and the boys were, you know, five, seven and nine at the time. Uh, and they came in and wanted to play baseball with my dad outside. And my dad, it was a hot day, and my dad couldn't go outside when it was, was hot because he was tethered to an oxygen tank. So they went outside, and they were playing ball. And I came in, and my dad was sitting in a rocking chair, silhouetted, silhouetted by the light, uh, looking at his grandchildren. And a tear was running down uh, my dad's cheek. And it was at that moment that I really realized just how very much that coal company had taken from my dad uh, so that they could get an extra dollar in profit. That is a powerful story, Mr. Trimka. Reconciling the yeah. environmental rights movement 
with our concern, right, as well as labor rights movement and protecting industries and jobs that have created a middle class that are generational jobs uh, with the concerns of other movements like the environmental rights movement? Well, well, first of all, people have to realize that uh, while a lot of union jobs right now are good paying middle class family raising jobs, uh, they didn't start off that way. Uh, We made them good paying jobs, middle class jobs, uh, family raising jobs. And that was done by people like my grandfathers and my father who first organized a union and then fought in contract fight after contract fight to build the benefits and make the mine safer and give us the power to be able to close down the mine when it was dangerous or unsafe. That same struggle is facing people right now because you have jobs coming in, whether they're green jobs or whether they're jobs anywhere else that are non-union, gig jobs, that, that aren't good paying jobs yet. But you know, when they're unionized, uh, we have a chance of making them a good paying job and, and actually making them better places to work, safer places to work, healthier places to work, more productive places to work. And so when we do that, everybody in the country wins. Now, when it comes to the environment, uh, think about this. We've been forced to work in terrible environments for years. In the mine, we had to breathe dust, asbestos, different places in the mills. You breathe chemical stuff, fumes that you didn't even know what you were breathing. And we were forced to breathe that. So we understand the importance uh, of a clean environment. And it was the labor movement that first fought for a clean environment. First, where we work. Uh, Because you spend more of your waking time where you work than you do anywhere else. And so we're still fighting that fight. We're still fighting for right to no laws. We're still fighting to, to get the power for people not to have to work in unsafe conditions. For instance, right now, you have people, essential workers that are forced to work in unsafe conditions. And they, if they stop, they try to fire them. Uh, when you have a union, at least we prevent that from happening and we protect those people. And then, we live in the areas where all the stuff is, is prevalent. The, the lack of environmental integrity is prevalent. Think about this. You know, when we first were back in the mines, uh, they would just rip the earth apart, wouldn't reclaim it. We were the ones that were living in those areas. We were the ones that had to look at that and suffer from erosion, from acid water, mine water, different things that were out there. So we understood the importance of a clean environment and we started to fight for that. It was workers who changed the need in mining, for instance, made them do reclamation, made them clean up the water so it was pristine again. And now we have a bigger problem. We have a problem with the the global environment. And it's going to be workers that are going to actually get that movement done too because we understand the importance of having a global uh, environment that is sustainable, that we can raise our kids and grandkids in, and they can live healthy in, and not actually hasten the end of human, humanity on the face of the earth because we didn't take care of the environment that we're in. And in the process, we can create a lot of jobs. And those jobs can be good paying jobs once they're unionized. And once we get a chance to negotiate and, and share the benefits of all the productivity that we create and all the wealth that we create, if workers get a chance to fairly share that, 
then we all do a little bit better. President Trump, I, I can relate to your story, you know, about the black lung and your, and your family. Uh, my mother lost her father at 33 years old, seven kids. My grandmother became a widow uh, because of minor consumption. And, you know, we were told stories about how minors would cough up their lungs. One of the things that I have hanging in my office, which keeps me humble, is my cousins who worked at Phelps Dodge, and I'm sure you're very familiar with that, the PD. I I am. Yeah, I know you are. I have a poster in my office, and that humbles me. That's perfect. That humbles me. That keeps me grounded. It keeps me rooted back to my grandfather and my parents and, and tough times in Arizona. But then the last election... Uh, and I won't say his name, but the presidential candidate was going to refurbish all the coal mines and, you know, generate jobs. And I can't even imagine what that meant to you personally, not as the president of the AFL, but as a, a minor at, you know, being a teenager that had to go in the quote unquote hole. That must have been uh that must have, you know, created anger in you to no end that, you know, someone uh, could be that uh, uh, shameful and promise, you know, folks uh, a better life when he had no intention of doing it. Yeah, he, uh, look, uh, our, our members believe that, uh, and workers in general believe, that neither the political system nor the economic system uh, is working for them. Uh, and so they, they were looking for someone to change the system. Uh, and he came in and said, I'm going to change the system. And uh, Hillary, uh, Hillary was up in Pennsylvania and she said the following words. She said, I'm going to close a lot of coal mines and put a lot of coal miners out of work. I, I think she didn't realize what she was saying at the time. And every worker up there, if you were a steel worker, a gas worker, a rubber worker, a tire worker, uh, an iron worker, you heard her say, I'm going to close your facility and put you out of work. And he says, I'm going to make things better. Well, here's, what's, here's the truth of the matter. There are 133,000 fewer miners in this country now than the day he took office. There are almost 200 fewer power plants in this country than when he took office. There are 654,000 fewer manufacturing workers than when he took office. There are 394,000 fewer construction workers than when he took office. So for him to say, I've helped workers, is simply not true. It's a bold-faced lie. And that doesn't even talk about all of the health and safety regulations that he overturned. It took us eight years to get a regulation on silicosis. And you just told the story about your, your relative, your grandfather who died at 32. Your grandfather who died at 32 probably had uh, silicosis back at that time, mining through iron ore or sandstone full of silica, and they got silicosis. We knew about silicosis back in the 20s that it killed people, and they did nothing about it. They lied about it. He, 
instead of helping us, he did away with the silicosis standard. He did away with the beryllium standard. OSHA, which is supposed to protect our health and safety, and MSHA, our health and safety in the mines, OSHA has fewer inspectors now than it's ever had in its entire history. It's a cadaver of, of what it was. It is no longer an effective tool to protect workers. And then we don't even have the power to protect ourselves because he refuses to pass a mandatory pandemic standard so that if OSHA doesn't enforce it or MSHA doesn't enforce it, we could enforce it ourselves. But he refuses to do that. And yet at the same time, you'll remember this. He ordered people back to work. Remember what he did to the meatpacking plants? He ordered people to go back to work with no health and safety standards. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those workers were infected with COVID because they had no safety standards and there was nothing to enforce. That's not a man who can be claimed to be uh, a friend of working people. He has changed the rules just like he said he would, but not to help working people. He's made it worse for working people. You're absolutely right, Mr. Trump. And earlier this year, we actually visited striking Asarco workers in Arizona. Ron coordinated a trip, a solidarity trip with the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor to support workers in Arizona uh, who were being taken advantage, who were striking because this multinational corporation was flat out abusing these workers. And the Trump administration and, and the Republican senators in Arizona, I mean, were mum about these corporations taking advantage of of the workers and thankfully nine months later they won the strike but what's interesting about that is well they won nine months and you have some experience as i understand it with a successful and historic nine-month strike that you led it against the pits and coal company can you talk about that sure can first of all in order to talk about pits then you have to remember what was going on around in the country at that time because Pittston came about in uh, 1989. You'll recall President Reagan busted PATCO uh, earlier in that decade. Uh, and after that, uh, every employer out there thought they had a license to bust unions. And so they were going after unions, uh, getting concessions even when they didn't need them, busting unions anytime they went out. And we come up to... Uh, uh, Pittston Coal Company, which was a large international company. They had mines in uh, Australia. They had mines in South Africa. They had a lot of mines in the United States. Uh, and they said the following, we're not going to pay health care. We're not going to provide health care for your retirees anymore, even though they had made a commitment that if you retire, you got two things. You got pension, or your pension and you got health care for life and your family got it for their life. That was the deal that we cut with them. And we took lower wages so we could get that health care. Well, Pittston said, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna honor them. We're gonna stop paying health care for them. We're gonna cut their pensions. We're gonna cut your wages. We're gonna increase your hours. We're gonna do a whole bunch of things. And we said, interesting if true. We started preparing our members, and I went down and talked to our members, and I was convinced that, that they weren't yet prepared to strike. And so we spent almost a year 
preparing them, working uh, without a contract, working to rule, organizing, organizing in our in our towns uh, around that. Uh, and then we uh, ultimately went on strike. And the uh, coal company originally believed that any day our members would just come pouring back across the line because the six months before we went on strike, they would go into our members every day in the mine and say, you don't want to strike, do you? And our members would say, no, we don't want to strike. But they never asked the second question, will you strike? And so they were convinced that our members wouldn't strike and they kept pushing us more and making worse offers. Eventually we decided that we were ready and, and, and we went on strike. We were on strike for a little over 10 months actually and there wasn't a single mine worker that crossed the picket line during that uh, whole strike, not one. Uh, we had uh, tremendous, tremendous solidarity and what we did is we organized the towns uh, and the communities around us and we said if if they can take our health care away from us then you can take they can take your health care away from you uh, and people started supporting us from other not only other unions but from small businesses from places around the country and we kept picking up power and picking up speed we had uh, six high schools that went on strike to support their parents. Uh, we had stuff like this, they would, we were doing peaceful civil disobedience uh, and the, the, the governor, who was a democratic governor, by the way, his name was Jerry Bliles. He had 75% of the state police in the entire state down there escorting coal trucks uh, back and forth. One, one day, one of the buses that they had uh, pulled into a uh, gasoline station in town and he the guy said uh, fill it up and the owner of the station said before you take any gas i want you to know that for you gas is 75 dollars a gallon uh, and that's when it was about you know buck 50 or buck 75 a gallon and he says that's outrageous i i, I won't pay 75 dollars a gallon and the guy said good get your bus out of here uh, so it was that kind of community support that we ultimately arranged and had the, the benefit of. And unions from all over the country came. We set up a camp down there called Camp Saul, and people would come. They would contribute. They would uh, work, talk to the strikers, encourage the strikers. And, you know, ultimately after a, a, a period of time, uh, we won. But he, here's one of the things we did. You know, the, the labor laws in this country uh, are still designed for workers to lose. Everything in, in the labor law is designed for you to lose. They took away all of our power in 47 and 59, and what they haven't, the courts have t tried to take away afterwards. And the last page in, in the book that says if the workers are still winning, it says get an injunction and you find them for contempt. And that's the last page we got you now. So we had literally hundreds of injunctions filed against us. And I put up with it for a little while and I knew this. I knew if I complied with all of those injunctions, I was gonna lose that strike. And if I lost that strike, I was gonna lose healthcare for a couple of thousand people. And if I lost healthcare for a couple of thousand people, that meant the other 350,000 that still had it from the other companies, the next time around, they would come after it.
So I decided you were going to do what we had to do to win the strike. Uh, and we weren't going to listen to their injunctions or anything they had to do. Uh, and so they started finding us. They find us, uh, it was uh, $500,000 a day, but the amount doubled every day that you violated. So it was 500,000, a million, 2 million, 4 million, 8 million, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, et cetera, et cetera. Every day the amount doubled. Uh, and pretty soon the amounts were up into the octillions of dollars. And uh, we actually started making fun of them. They were so high. Uh, the fine said, well, we, we didn't have that kind of money. They couldn't pay it. But I, I, I came to one realization, and you know, I probably am saying too much right now, but this is how I felt. I felt that I could be a union if I didn't have a treasury, but I couldn't be a union if all I was was a treasury. And so their threats to, to take away the treasury uh, really were not a threat at all because I knew my guys, would, our members would stick together I knew we would be able to, to be able to win and ultimately we won the strike. We saved the health care and, and all the other unions back then that were taking those concessions. That was the first time that we had a strike and we actually won the strike and it reversed that whole trend because after that, miners and, and other workers, all, all workers across the country, public sector, private sector, construction workers, all started negotiating contracts that had benefit increases, not benefit uh, giveaways. And so it sort of helped turn that the whole process around. Uh, and I know that you can relate to this because you come from my generation. But you and I are what was called back in the day, right, quote unquote, just a union guy. The fact that no one crossed your 2,000 member picket line is your leadership. And, you, and the belief that the members there had in their leadership. Your comment on the treasury is so old school the way I was trained because my mentors told me, you're not a bank, you're a union. But with that said, we have, I, I'm so glad that you're on this call. I'm so glad and inspired that, you know, Los Angeles is going to be hearing you, 800,000 union members here president of the AFL, but you were rank and file. If you don't mind, I don't have a question for you, but I would ask that you make a commentary because your career is a career of success from being a rank and file to being the AFL president. But could you, could you guide us through, through your career so that young, young unionists out there understand that there, there is a chance that, you know, the next President Trumpka is out there in the ranks. Thereafter, I promise you that, uh, uh, you know, it might be a male or a female, but thereafter, I promise you. So here, here's what happened. I, I thought I was going to play uh, football up at Penn State, uh, and, and I got my knee busted and ended my, my football career. I thought that's the end of the world. I, quite frankly, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So I, I went in the mine. I started working as a rank and file miner. I went in the mine with my dad, my grandfathers. We all worked in the same mine, by the way. Both my grandfathers, my dad, and two of his brothers and myself all worked in the same coma. So, you know, I started working, and then that the union decided that uh, they saw something in me, uh, and they actually uh, put me through uh, through college. 
And first, uh, I went through uh, midnight shift in the mine, and I went to school in the daytime. Uh, and then uh, the union arranged for me to go to school six months and work in the mine six months. So I did that. My first office, as I told you, was uh, uh, chairman of the safety committee. And then I held uh, numerous local union offices throughout that period of time. Uh, and then uh, the union, after I got through college, uh, the union decided to actually send me to law school. And I went to Penn State undergraduate school, by the way. And then I went to, to law school, Villanova Law School, and the union uh, paid. And again, I worked six months in the mine, go to school six months, graduated from law school, uh, and uh, was still uh, working, did work in the mine. I went to work uh, in the legal department of the United Mine Workers. Uh, but during that time, I, I, I missed one of the most important parts of my career. We, we had a, a president when I first went in the mine. His name was Tony Boyle. Uh, and he was very, very autocratic. He was not very rank and file oriented. So we tried to get him out of there and we formed an organization called Miners for Democracy. Uh, and the Miners for Democracy wanted to democratize the union. We wanted to be able to elect our own officials. We wanted to be able to, to vote on our contracts. Uh, we wanted to be able to have a real say at a convention so that we could change uh, our constitution and so the Miners for Democracy uh, ran a candidate in 1969. His name was Jock Yablonski. Uh, Jock lost in a, in a tainted, unfair election in November. And on January, or December 31st, or January 1st, uh, he was murdered, and his wife and daughter were murdered by uh, people that uh, Tony Boyle had hired. So our guy got killed, and... Ultimately, after a number of trials up and down, Tony Boyle was ultimately convicted uh, of their murder uh, and was sent to jail. Then in 72, that was in 69, in 72, we had a rerun election and we actually won. We won the election. Uh, we had a gigantic uh, convention. Uh, we democratized uh, the mine workers, made it the most democratic organization uh, in, in the labor movement, quite frankly. Then I got off to, to, to law school. When I was in law school, I worked again. And as I said, I came back and went to work in the, in the legal department of the mine workers. Won a couple of uh, big appeals court cases. Had a, had a Supreme Court case uh, that I went uh, with my case, went to the Supreme Court. But then I had philosophical differences with the guy that we elected. He was sort of falling into the same trend as the guy that we had replaced him with. Uh, and so I went back to the mine. I resigned uh, my legal career, uh, and I went back to the mine uh, and worked in the mine again. And I, I did pro bono law when I was back at, at the mine. I represented guys in black lung cases. I did workman's comp cases, all free. I never charged uh, anybody for, for legal representation because I figured that the union, the miners had given me that that education and I owed it to them. So I, I did it all free. I did some adoptions for people and some wills for people and basically anything they needed done. Uh, and, and then uh, the election, an election was coming up and we had an executive board uh, seat coming up and I ran for that executive board seat and, and, all, and I got elected. I beat the incumbents uh, supported candidate about uh, 10 to one in that election. Uh, I ran a, a rank-and-file-based election, and then uh, a few years later, 
uh, people from around the country started asking me to uh, run for political for for uh, president of the mine workers. I ran for president and I beat the incumbent three to one in, in that election and became president in 1982 and was president of the mine workers from 1982 to 1995. Uh, and in 95, uh, there was a committee that wanted to put together a slate to run against Lane Kirkland at that time. Uh, John Sweeney was the president and they, they literally drafted me to be secretary treasurer because I, I was having the time of my life being president of my work and I loved my job. I loved the guys that I work with, the women that I work with. I loved the communities that, that you know we were located in and I didn't have any intention to run and they sort of drafted me into it so I ran uh, and I was a secretary treasurer of the AFL-CIO from 95 to 2009. And then in 2009, I became president uh, of the AFL-CIO. And I've been here uh, ever since. On the democratizing, that took a lot of courage to take on that. And I had no idea that there was you know, murder and everything going into these elections. And we've seen you carry a lot of that, you know, vision for change at the national FLCIO. I recall what I view as one of your most powerful and most poignant moments in 2014, uh, in the wake of the killing of Michael Brown, you gave a speech in Missouri, uh, where you took on a, a conversation that was not comfortable in the labor movement. And in many ways is still not uh, on race relations. And, the powerful quote was, our brother killed our sister's son. What are your reflections from six years ago when you made that speech, especially in the in wake of the uprising from George Floyd's murder and, and where we are today a, as a country uh, with the reckoning of, of these injustices against uh, uh, black, black men? You know, I... I... I still remember uh, the first time uh, that I saw racism in my life. And I'm going to tell you this story so that I can talk about uh, Ferguson and, and that speech there. I had a friend uh, when I was growing up. Uh, my best friend uh, lived uh, two doors away from me with a, a black kid. Uh, and he and I were pretty much inseparable. And uh, my dad took us uh, to this uh, park one time, they had a swimming pool there. And uh, it, when you pull in, there was a booth. And you pull up to the booth and the guy would charge for everybody that was in the car. And so when we pull up to the booth, and, and I'm about five or six at this time, okay? Five or six years old. So we pull up to the booth and a guy points to my buddy Tom in the backyard, in the back seat, and he says, that boy can't swim here. My dad never raises his voice. My dad says, you better take out for that boy because that boy's going to swim here. And that guy gets agitated and he speaks a little louder and a little more forcefully. That boy can't speak swim here. You know he can't swim here. And my dad never raises his voice. He says, you better take out for that boy because that boy's going to swim here. So I, I don't know if he took out for him or not, but we went in we changed our clothes. We jumped in the pool. The pool's completely full, right? People everywhere in the pool. When we jumped in, he and I, 
there was like a 10-foot ring around us where no one came near us. And, uh, you know, we swam. We had a good time. We got something to eat. We went home. And after we left Tom up, I, I said to my dad, why, why, did, why didn't that guy like Tom? And my dad stopped the car and he explained to me about racism and about how people judge other people by the way they looked rather than the way they acted or what was in their heart. And uh, that had a pretty profound effect on me. And so as I thought about Ferguson, I thought about what happened there. And I thought about exactly that. Our brother shot our sister's son. They're both brothers and sisters, but look what happened. And I thought that we had to fix that. And so I started challenging it overtly everywhere, uh, more, more seriously, more strenuously, louder, more strenuous, more determined. Uh, we put together a commission uh, and we went all through the country having conversations about race. And, and you're right, people sure don't want to have that conversation. And when we put black people and, and brown people uh, and white people together in a room, they all like clustered with each other for the first part of the meeting. Uh, it was like an eighth grade dance, you know, where you had all the boys on one side and all the girls on the other side. Uh, and uh, then after a while, people started asking questions and actually started talking. And see, at, at first they were afraid that if they spoke their heart, that somebody would jump all over them and yell at them. But once they found out that we were gonna have a real conversation, then they started speaking their heart. And we found out that we had so much more in common than we did not in common that they actually started bonding together. And we started making some progress. Well then, as usually happens, the spotlight went off of, uh, off of Ferguson and you know the, the intensity, the determination to, to change lessened. Then it started just happening here and happening there and Brianna uh, got, got killed and, and this one got killed and uh, that one got killed uh, and, and then we started picking up momentum uh, again. And then when I saw COVID, how COVID was actually hitting people of color so much harder than it was everybody else, uh, I made up my mind that I was going to make sure that we didn't lose focus this time so that when COVID went away, we didn't stop. We didn't stop the fight to change and make structural uh, change. And so I started actually putting together a commission uh, long before the, the incidents that gave rise to, to Black Lives Matter. We were already in the process of putting together a task force. That just was the icing on the cake, though. Uh, it focused everything. We went on from there. I'm determined that the labor movement has to be the tip of the spear, whether it's fighting for LGBTQ people, transgender people, people that are black, brown, or any other color, who you love, who you worship. you got a right to do all of those. And it's the labor movement that's going to make sure that you get the right to do any of the things that you choose to do 
that make you happy as, as a human being. I'm still fighting some of the same fights uh, I fought whenever I was 18 years old. We're still fighting racism. We're still fighting a number of those fights. And while we've made progress in some areas, it seems with this president, we've actually degenerated in other areas. That it is now fashionable to be a white supremacist. They used to do it, they would hit a, hide under a sheet before, remember? Now they openly proclaim who they are and what they are. And while we have a long way to go, I see that the good in people is coming out more and more and more and more. And more people are uniting to say, we want a world where everybody, everybody gets treated fairly. And you do get judged by the content of your character and not the color of your skin or who you love or who you worship uh, or anything of that sort. And I'll probably uh, go to my grave still fighting that fight, but I'll know uh, that we've made progress and we're not going to quit until that is ended. And we really do have a fair, just society that treats everybody fairly and equally. I want to uh, give you the opportunity. Got to talk about the election. Got to talk about removing this maniac from Washington, D.C., Words of encouragement. What would you like the 800,000 union members here in Los Angeles to do for you as the AFL president to achieve your mission and kick this guy out of the Oval Office? Uh, I'd like for everybody between now and the next 18 days <clears throat> or how many days it is to the election, uh, I'd like for you to help others make phone calls into battleground states. Uh, help us do literature drops, uh, vote early, get out and vote, and get everybody in your family to vote, uh, because this is a chance to make your voice heard. This is when we get a chance to change the direction of the country. Please don't wake up on November 4th and say, I wish I'd have done more. Do it now. Put it out all out on the field right now so that we can actually rebuild this country and make it better. Taking it back to what it was is not good enough because we still had racism back then. We still had poverty back then. We still had discrimination against immigrants, uh, against LGBTQ people and, and others. We want to build it back better. And the only way we're going to do that is to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris right now and, and work with them thereafter to make sure that the agenda that we're talking about, a worker's agenda, gets actual, actually implemented uh, into the law of this country and becomes the norm of this country. We can do that if we stand together. We can do that if we stand together, we can build a better country, one that is more fair, more just, more tolerant, uh, and more supportive uh, of people. And I'm going to make sure I do everything I can between now and the time that the polls close to get every voter out that I can to vote because the direction of the country depends on it. Sir, I just wanted to thank you for coming on today. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. It's been an honor just to listen to you, to have this opportunity. You truly are a living legend and a true unionist, a union guy, as I said earlier, an inspiration and a model 
for young unionists to be inspired to achieve their goals in life. Thank you, uh, President Trumpka, for joining us today and sharing your story, all the resemblances between, you know, it's always matters in, in inspiring and seeing rank and file members rise through leadership and carry the values and that humility into the role. And it, it's just great to hear everything you've done. And from the Federation's point of view and the political department, we're committed to making sure for all the reasons you mentioned, Joe Biden is elected president. If nothing else as well, because I know you guys are, are literal neighbors with uh, whoever occupies the White House. So uh, I can imagine that your current neighbor is, is not a fun one holding uh, COVID spreaders and everything uh, next to you. So we want to make sure for all the reasons you mentioned, <laughs> just getting a better neighbor uh, at the National FLCIO, getting them to you. One last question that I, I just have, and it's a very quick one, it might be the third most important question. Where is the best place to get a Philly cheesesteak? As a Pennsylvania? <laughs> Philadelphia. <laughs> with, and we have to ask for it with. Make sure when you order a cheesesteak in Philly, you say with, because uh, it's going to come with uh, cheese, uh, cheese whiz, and it is uh, absolutely superb. Nobody makes a better one uh, than we do in Philly. Uh, I love them. Uh, look, Ron, uh, look, Hugo, uh, let me say thank you. Uh, let me tell you how important the work that you're doing is. Uh, podcasts like this, talking to your members uh, is very, very, very important so that they can get a feel for things, understand people, and know that they're not in this alone, that we're all in this together. And we all do better when we all do better. Uh, and that's what a union does. We bring everybody together so that we all do better, and then the country does better. Uh, God bless you. Stay safe and listen, keep up the great work because you're really making a difference. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very much. Hey, this is President Ron Herrera thanking you and my co-host, Brother Hugo Romero, for joining us on this episode of Welcome to Uniontown. <laughs>